Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. Uh, It is to dig into big industry events that might interest you, the listener, to talk about the games that my guests and I have been playing, and occasionally to talk to the wonderful people that create these games. Now, if you are hearing this, uh, it has been a a hot minute since Cast Ice has been on. Uh, It's been a couple of months. In that time, Melbourne's gone through another one of its extreme uh, COVID lockdowns. Uh, I've had quite a lot of work, and um, sadly, uh, well, not sadly, we've also moved house. So it has been very busy. For those of you who have messaged, yes, I'm still alive. We're here, clearly, uh, and it is very good to be back. Now, if we're going to come back after a break, you know I always like to go big. And ladies and gentlemen, we are going huge. Now, earlier this year, we spoke to a couple of these fine gentlemen um, in the discussion uh, that... The, the, the preview stage, if you will, of a project that has now come to fruition. Uh, it is one of the games that, as a gamer, I love playing. I'm very excited about this new edition of the game, which I have currently in the mail, and I'm working off of some notes for today, so they will correct me if I'm not entirely right. But of course, I have to introduce the big man himself from behind Crooked Dice Games, Carl. Welcome back to the show how you doing man i'm good brad i'm really really good we've uh we're we're, we're nearly there we've we've got the game coming out i can sit back and uh and relax a little bit for the first time in in a, in a good few months so yeah really really good that's awesome now of course the game you're talking about is seven tv fantasy and we're going to be talking about that at length But before that, we need to introduce my other guests. Now, Carl has put out quite a few seven TV editions over the years as a solo uh, Crooked Dice project. But uh, starting with seven TV Pulp, which was uh, the previous edition before this, he worked in conjunction with Edge Hill University in the UK. And... uh, it has been an amazing uh, collaboration that allows uh, up-and-coming writers, game designers, uh, you know, people who just have a little inkling to get into the industry or none whatsoever, and this has given them uh, the inkling. Uh, of course, if we're going to talk about this program, we have to talk about The Man Without, which it wouldn't happen. Of course, we're talking about Peter Wright. Peter, welcome. You are the lecturer slash faculty member behind this collaboration. Hi, Brad. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah. Um, chance meeting with Carl way back in 2017 uh, led to, to us working together and to be able to um, give students the opportunity to work on 7TV and develop new games, which has been great. That's awesome. And 7TV Pulp was just brilliant. It is my favorite edition of 7TV. And you guys have had three prior to fantasy, um, which are full standalone game sets, which really dig into uh, different facets of fiction. Of course, we'll get to that in a sec. And the last time you guys were on, we had a couple of guests um, who were also students, but this time we have a new student. Dan, welcome to your very first Wargaming podcast. How are you, man? Uh, I'm doing okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Now, uh, Dan... 
given a couple years ago, before this all started, uh, before you started, uh, you know, collaborating as part of this project, were you a gamer or where did this come from? Yeah, I mean, I think I've been been a big old big old nerd who loves games for a long time. Um, so I sort of had like I like really like fantasy and like board games, mm-hmm. video games. I hadn't really done much like war gaming, so this was kind of a first like I don't know kind of looking to that. But yeah, I was definitely kind of established, I suppose. Yeah, you knew your way around uh, the nerd world, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. Nice. Well, um, Peter, tell us a little bit about how it has all gone because you you basically supervised all of the, the students slash interns throughout this project and many of them continued on well past the, the finishing of their course, right? Yeah, I mean, it was one of those circumstances where we originally planned to, as we did with Pulp, to start in sort of the October, which would have been 2019, and usually work through to May or June, which is the end of the semester, uh, and then take a a summer break and then start again in sort of September, October time. And we advertise at those two beginning points, the beginning of the year points for new interns and existing interns can reapply. So it's about two cohorts having a chance to work on the game. Mm -hmm. But COVID came along and from the sort of March, April time, 2020, we started to work online and we just carried on working online right the way through summer 2020, right the way into 2021. So most of the interns um, really haven't taken a break unless they, they either graduated or, or left for some other reason. So we've been able to work consistently right the way across the, the sort of 21 months uh, where Pulp had a distinct break in the middle. I think that's really enabled us to do much more with fantasy. It certainly allowed us to revise things um, and certainly profile cards particularly uh, until we really had built into them everything we possibly wanted to get from them. So in a peculiar way, COVID helped us to to develop the the game, you know, kind of development process. Uh, But it also enabled us to work in an entirely different way, which was working exclusively online for months um and i don't think the team has got together now since march last year i don't think we've seen one another um which has been a a really odd experience but really productive as well dan have you been along this whole time then yeah since the start of this project yeah somehow stuck around for an extra year (laughs) yeah and how has that experience been for you i mean I know that when I was in university, there were certain projects that I was very excited about, and I was happy to continue on after I finished. But it sounds like you just kept going and going and going. Um, I mean, clearly, this has been a bit of a labor of love for you. Yeah, I mean, it's. I honestly didn't really know what to expect with it at the start, but I just found myself really enjoying it and being like, oh, yeah, this is kind of a thing that I can do. And then stuff kept cropping up, and then I was like, oh, maybe I can do this and this and, like, sure we can do that work and yeah i don't know it's kind of just snowballed to the point where i've just been been doing stuff on it the whole time because i don't know it's fun and i feel like the stuff that i've been doing has been helpful so yeah it's it's been pretty great nice i think it's useful this time that we, we actually knew what we were doing uh, so when, we, <laughs> when we did pull, uh yeah we were kind of making it up as we, as we went along where do we start you know well, everybody has to watch a lot of pulp cinema serials mm-hmm. and then then what do we do 
Um, and this time uh, we really knew what we were doing and the stages we needed to go through. Um, and that, again, that was helped by, by COVID because we could literally compartmentalize things and go, okay, so this now at this point, we're working on the magic system. At this point, we're working on the profile cards. At this point, we're working on the studio background. At this point, we're going to look at, you know, how we market the game and things like that. So yeah, having the experience of Pulp, I think really fed into um, the, the, the experience we had developing fantasy. Uh, we weren't making it up. We we were actually really on point with it, and I think that was probably essential under the conditions we were working at this time. Well, you literally also- beat me to my next question, which was to talk exactly about if the second time around things, if you learned from the first time around, if if that if that process was more organic the second time, as as you. A once one knew each other better. Um, I, I know that some of the students were different, but um, you know Peter and Carl, you guys would have collaborated, and you would have had a much clearer idea of how that collaboration would work. But also, I guess, and the second part of that, and Carl, you can talk to this, is I, I as much as I love pulp, and I love pulp, uh, and I love World War II and interwar period and all of that. I think fantasy is one of those genres that is just that much bigger. It's just one of the big iconic genres. Um, I mean, in my classroom, there is not a single pulp book. However, there is an entire section of fantasy novels, and that is chosen by children, and that's just because it is such an iconic genre in our culture. Uh, So this is taking a bite of almost a far bigger apple, right? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody has got that shorthand. I mean, what are the first stories that we're all told? They're normally fairy tales of, of one description or or another. Um, with pulp, we did that research phase, but the material that the students were looking at was 70, 90 years old. Uh, and even just the story to any kind of narrative format of it with its with the kind of 14 part, uh, 12, 13 part chapter serials was a little odd. Um, we didn't have any of that, which means we hit the ground running a lot quicker with fantasy. People understood the archetypes and understood the genre. Yeah, we had to do some work just to distill those down into the groups that would work mechanically for the game. Um, but we didn't have to explain the difference between, you know, a jungle adventure and a planetary romance and, right. uh, and, and give examples of those. People got that a lot, a lot, lot quicker. Uh, and that that just speeded the whole thing up um i think we were by the midpoint we were about i think about kind of eight weeks ahead of where we had been on on pulp and and that that just helped us kind of do more stuff over over the summer as well and dan was being modest earlier he put his hand up over that period and said is there anything else you would like me to do so we were really able to kind of do a lot of additional work that we hadn't done but all of that was massively helpful for me commercially to be able to schedule a project and a box set to know how long those things take. Yeah, I know that may sound a little strange, but in the past, it's pretty much just been me with maybe working with one other people here and there on, on bits and pieces. Uh, and you do it over kind of an extended period between other things. But because we can schedule it down, it's now quite easy to go, okay, spreading that over a year we know when those blocks of work have got to be done and all the other creative work has got to be running in parallel with that. And that's, that's been massively, massively useful for me um, in just a kind of a production management 
um, think it's an odd kind of um, bonus that I've got out of it as well. Well, guys, let's talk a little bit about fantasy as a whole. Now, one of the great things about 7TV is it allows you to take any intellectual property, any universe, any world, any je ne sais quoi that that we pull into as gamers that we like, the 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 fluff. And you can play anything. You can play James Bond. You can play The Man from Uncle. If you're going Spy Fi, you can play Mad Max. If you're going Apocalypse, you could play Hellboy or, I mean, Indiana Jones. You can combine all of them. You can have the Scooby Gang battling Mumra from the Thundercats and his mutants. I mean, there are just so many different combinations that you can put on the 7TV tabletop that is... I mean, it just works. It'll, it's the ultimate sandbox game, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But one of the sandboxes that almost didn't fit was fantasy. Now, fantasy, as we said, is, is, is huge. But let's unpack that a little bit further because when we say fantasy in a gaming sense, we often go back to Dungeons & Dragons. We go to the Warhammer universe. We go to the original, Tolkien, uh, or even further back. But 7TV really takes that and runs with it. I mean, yes, you could play The Witcher. Uh, you could play uh, literally anything from any of these fantasy role-playing games that exist. But beyond that, you can get into fairy tales. You can get into folklore. It is truly expansive what is what you are able to put on the tabletop in this game, you can do things that you literally can't do with almost any other game I can think of, and I know a lot of games. Can you guys talk to me a little bit about how you tackled the concept of fantasy? Because, my God, it's it's beyond description, really. Um, Carl, do you want to start? Yeah, I, well, I think, as you've said, 7TV... The difference maybe between the, the the game that we've got and others is normally most most games have a setting. They have a back history. They have a, they have some world building um, around it. So you're playing in a particular setting, and that setting probably has particular world laws, whether it's high fantasy or low fantasy or or fairy tale, whatever it might be. Some TV doesn't really do that. In fact, will it, it? It takes a step back and says, "No, we're." that will allow you to play all the different genres and flavors um, that are within that particular oeuvre, really. Um, so, as you said, we've done that with Spy-Fi and with Apocalypse um, and, and with Pulp. There were some particular challenges with fantasy um, that, that were a little different from some of the other ones. Peter, I don't know if whether you want to say anything about that, because we found it when we were looking at the original genres, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, I think there was... Settling on the six genres, first of all, um, and we had eight originally in contention and we set two aside. So we realized pretty quickly that we couldn't do urban fantasy as part of the box set. It was just a little bit too different uh, and the profiles would be quite different as well. So we thought we'd drop that. Um, and then uh, there wasn't really enough to do science fantasy. So the kind of Gene Wolfe book of the new sun Jack Vance, Dying Earth, Robert Silverberg, Nightwings, that kind of novel, uh, and this very little film and TV uh, that are around those kind of far future narratives. So we dropped those two. 
and then we concentrated on on the six genres we've got which is epic fantasy folktale historical fantasy mythic fantasy pen and paper fantasy and sword and sorcery and some of those were kind of in existence already for us so sword and sorcery is very much a, a recognized kind of subgenre of fantasy mm -hmm. Conan the Barbarian, or probably Conan the Barbarian is the best example, but Gerald of Joyry and things like that. Um, pen and Paper was our, our kind of homage to sort of old school tabletop gaming that, that Carl was very keen, I think, on, on making sure was an integral part of, of fantasy. Uh, mythic, we wanted to be able to capture the Ray Harryhausen movies and go back to sort of ancient Greek myths uh, and sort of the, the, the stories of Sinbad and things like that. Uh, historical fantasy was that weird kind of crossover between fantasy and history. So, the Legend of Arthur or, or Robin Hood. Um, Folktale was, as, as you were saying, Brad, we started to think about how we could build in fairy tales and the Fae, uh, sort of dark woods and, and, and that kind of middle European uh, grim fairy tale kind of aspect. And then the epic fantasy was really the, the kind of Tolkien esque Game of Thrones kind of fantasy. But then we had to sort out which profiles fitted in best with each of those six sort of six genres and how we could cross them over um, and see which ones appeared in, in usually three. And that was that was quite a trick. And, and Carl and I spent quite a bit of time trying to work that out. And we we actually disagreed. Oh, very, very friendly kind of disagreement. Uh, but we disagreed quite a bit, didn't we, really, at those those early stages? Yeah, there's a part of it where you want to reflect the genre that those archetypes come from. And then there's the other challenge of making sure that you've got a balance of archetypes across all of the genres so that mechanically the game kind of stacks up with how how those genres work. Um, because the way that you build your cast is based on the genres that your stars and co-stars have. Um, so there was a little bit of fine tuning, a little bit of wrestling backwards and forwards here. And of course, everybody has their kind of their fan favorite archetypes as well that they want mm -hmm. to defend. Uh, so, but I, I think well, I mean, we got there, we got there in the end, but also we had 230 profiles in this box set. So we had, a, yes. a, you know, a lot to spread around, I think would be, uh, it, 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 I think it pretty much solved it. I think what we really tried to do was just enable players' imaginations. So I think when I was growing up and I was sort of playing Warhammer and things, I didn't really want to play Warhammer Fantasy Battle. I wanted to play Conan the Barbarian, or I wanted to play Lord of the Rings, or you know, games like that. And I spent ages, you know, scouring shelves of miniatures looking for the perfect miniature that kind of looked like a barbarian hero. Um, so when we when we came to fantasy, it's, we thought, well, we've got an opportunity here to open up the entire field of fantasy for for players to indulge their imaginations in, so they can play their favorite movie if they wanted to, or they could play their favorite TV show, or they could make up their own films and TV shows. And I think one of the things that 7TV is really good at is, is exercising its players' imagination. So if you want to create your own barbarian adventure, you can. You can build a world if you want to for it, and then you can play in that world. So I guess 7TV fantasy is really like a toolbox that enables players. Uh, I think that's what drew me to the system originally. Right. Dan, would, did you find that as well? Yeah, I think so. I think having like such a big genre <laughs> as fantasy, like that's kind of the angle we took. Was like we can't obviously go, oh, we're going to go really deep on this one specific sort of type of fantasy or whatever. We kind of have to 
have this almost like toolbox, like you say, of like, oh, hey, we could have a few, I don't know, like pirates or whatever. We can have some mythical beasts and things. So it's sort of like taking a bit from each sort of facet of fantasy, I guess, and then bringing those together. Being like, oh, if I want to have, I don't know, my my cast of like traditional sort of fantasy dwarves going up against the evil wizard and his, I don't know, demon pirates. That is a thing that you could technically do if you wanted. And like, yes. I think that's the kind of stuff where it's like, sure, yeah. That's the kind of thing that we can do with that sort of, not grab bag of profiles, but like wide range of different sort of parts of the genre, I guess. Well, that's one of the great things about storytelling and fantasy storytelling in, in general is that there are absolute archetypes of characters and sub-characters that we identify with, regardless if it's a book or if it's a movie or if it's a video game, um, that we just automatically cling to and say, oh, yes, I know this character. And then when we look at things like Star Wars, we can immediately go, ah, I, I recognize Han Solo as the, you know, the handsome rogue, um, which is more of a fantasy genre. But we still recognize it. And one of the great things about 7TV is it gives you, rather than specific named profiles, you get archetypes for characters that you can then go with. Now, we've mentioned it a couple times, but for those who haven't played 7TV, in 7TV, rather than creating a warband, you create a cast because you are literally creating an episode or a movie or a story that you are going to play out on the tabletop. And it, it's, it's set almost as a circa 1970s, circa 1980s, circa 1960s um, television show um, as far as, you know, the set might catch on fire or there might be a, 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 a wardrobe malfunction mid-game. You know, it's very tongue-in-cheek. It's very fun. But all of the characters that you are putting on the tabletop, all of the figures, are characters you are playing out the story with. Um, and it, it works unbelievably well, um, better than I'm describing it. But in every cast, um, in your warband, uh, whatever you would like to call it, you have your hero, your star, uh, and then you have a few supporting characters who are you know, important to the story as well, integral. Those are your co-stars. Um, and then you have you know, the plebs, your extras, who are just running around and sort of bulk out your numbers. And usually your stars and co-stars will have some sort of heroic ability that might help your extras along or hinder the extras on the other casts on the tabletop. Let's talk through some of the heroic stars, just some of these genres that are in the box. We have the blessed champion, the brooding barbarian, the callow youth, the daring dungeoneer, the dashing rogue, the divine mortal, the grand magus, the monster hunter, the tragic hero, and the valiant royal. And those are just the heroic archetypes that you can choose from. Now, I challenge anyone to pull a game out and say, hey, here, there's what, 12? Uh, there's quite a few heroic stars that you can pick from right off the bat. And there's an equal number of villainous stars. You have your damned di uh, diabolist, your dark lord, your uh, demonic fiend, your dread avatar, your uh, malevolent sorcerer, the tyrant king, the vile necromancer, the wicked queen, the wolfish warlord, and the ambitious usurper. I mean, come on, guys. That's just the main character in your cast. Then you have, as Carl said, what? 
215 other profiles in the box because it's over 230. There's a lot in there. And once you start combining those in weird combinations, as Dan was saying, you can come up with almost any story you want. But again, it's, it's that archetype, that lean-on archetype that makes the game such a sandbox game that allows you to play out what you want. Peter, what do you think? Is that a fair representation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we tried to do when we were sort of distilling all, all the different elements of fantasy down, we did try and find those specific archetypes and then think if we can provide enough archetypes from stars, co-stars and extras, you can do exactly the kind of thing that Dan was talking about. You can start to do really odd and peculiar and very specific um, types of, of, of skirmish. Um, so I'm hoping that those 230 profiles will address, you know, most people's imaginations um, and, and enable them to play whatever kind of uh, skirmishes they'd like under that kind of idea that it's a TV show or a film or, you know, a particular kind of key scene, uh, key combat scene in, in that particular film or TV show. Yeah, I, well, I, think I pulled out all of my old Warhammer Fantasy armies slash several fantasy uh, war bands from other game systems, literally pulled out every single model I owned, and there was an analog in this box. And I think that is truly amazing. It, is, it allows me to play with literally hundreds of models that I currently own right out of the box and made me immediately go look at buying other ones. There, Carl, did, were you going to say something there? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, it's, it's fine. Um, I was going to say, we've always said that the, the game is kind of miniature ag agnostic and Crooked Dice do do a lovely line, uh, but you they know, do. who hasn't got um, uh, some old fantasy models in there, even if you dig out your old box of Hero Quest um, and, uh, and, mm -hmm. and you you should be able to pretty much build anything. And we found with some of the archetypes that there's a kind of a bit of a scalability. So mechanically, depending on the sort of the size of the class that you want to do, some of those archetypes kind of live in various different camps. You know, Robin Hood can be a dashing rogue, which is one of our um, heroic stars, mm -hmm. or could be an agile archer as, um, as a, as a co-star or the Agile Archer could be kind of Legoless, who you would probably imagine were a bit more of a traditional uh, co-star. So we there's a big old Venn diagram where a lot of these overlap uh, and can give you quite a lot of scalability and flexibility to build different casts for different games, really. That's that's really what we try to do um, when, we're, when we're kind of putting all of those together. But... Um, the extra kind of 230 for the extras. There's a huge amount in there and adding pen and paper, which is something that I'd done when I did the um, the other world game is I, I really wanted to try and reflect a lot of those quite kind of peculiar and unique beasts and, and creatures um, that fantasy gives you the opportunity to, uh, to visit. But that means that they can't really be generic. They have to be quite specific. You know, a cockatrice has got some quite specific abilities compared to a bugbear or you know a, a, a goblin mm -hmm. um so that, we just couldn't cut anything out in the end we kept adding oh no we have to put that in and i think we we settled on those quite earlier probably a savvier businessman would have gone oh we'll take that bit out and do it as a different <laughs> supplement but mm -hmm. no which it's uh because you want to be able to play the lot i think well carl as someone who's played a lot of 7tv over the years 
one of the things that I love about it is because I have all of the editions of 7TV, I end up playing a lot of games where I've mixed the cards between, where I have pulp characters and apocalypse characters and spy fi characters and gear and cards all mixed together and they all interact together besides giving us 230 new profiles to add to my growing uh, <laughs> repertoire of um, or library of characters that I can put on the tabletop what does 7TV Fantasy do? 7TV Fantasy to be clear is a standalone box game There, is, it is everything you need to play but the miniatures. Now you might say, wait, this is a miniature game that doesn't come with miniatures. As Carl said, this is a miniature agnostic game. And just having gotten the last couple of seven T box seven TV boxes, I mean, they're a regular size game box that is filled with books, dice, templates, and all of the cards you need to play. So how does seven TV fantasy differ how is what is it giving you as the player than perhaps previous editions of the game um well if we kind of start with profiles uh in that we've added a couple of new things as you said there's this there's definitely over a thousand it might be something like 1200 profile cards or something ridiculous now that we've got from all the different sets so we tried hard as we can to kind of balance those but i think as we've got more experience at writing them we've probably got a few more innovative special effects in this set just because there's weird creatures that kind of demand it you know how do we do a medusa's glare or um how do we what happens if you get webbed by a spider you know you know that kind of thing it lends itself to some extra mechanics really um so with the profile cards a lot of almost all of the stars and co-stars and quite a few of the extras have got a new fun attack line. We've introduced presence attacks um, into fantasy, which is kind of a test of wills or a quirky character trait, um, which is uh, it acts exactly like a, an attack, but it adds lots of tone. And as we said before, 70 can go quite broad. So we look at all of those little touch points um, in all of the mechanics and, and accessories where we can add that tone. And presence allows us to do that really well. Um, and on the back of that, we needed a new status that would kind of um, be the outcome of, of if you gave someone you know, an, an icy glare or a beetling brows, which I think the Grand Magus has, uh, has got. Um, so there's a couple of new status in there and distracted is the one that we use predominantly um, for that, which is a really good way of softening up your players, uh, softening up your, your opponent's before you kind of engage with them. Uh, and that was something that we learned out of Pulp as well and what we wanted to do to make sure that each model, when it gets activated, has something to do. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing... It, should always be fun. Um, and there's nothing less fun than, you know, having your two actions realize you can't do anything with, with one of them in there. So we tried to bake that in with the new, um, with the new presence attacks. Um, what are the other statuses that we've got new ones in there poisoned is a new one um which gives you the usual kind of penalties that you get for it but it's just um it's it's more punishing you have to spend a couple more plot points to to get rid of it um and we've got a mobilized as well which was another one which that was very good for all of those strange pen and paper monsters that have some form of paralysis mm -hmm. um so it's good you know 
get bound in spiders' webs, or um, uh, yeah, the Medusa's glare. I think I kind of uh, mentioned um, before. So we've got a couple more statuses, and that allowed us to again be a little more innovative. Uh, and give some more kind of fun options for some of the attacks that models can do. Um, there was quite a few statuses there and all the uh, all the favourites are kind of still in, but we've broadened those out. And I think that gave us a lot more to play with when we were when we were building them. And you have a whole new type of attack now, um, or I guess interact way to interact um, with the tabletop and your opponent, which is by casting spells. Magic has never been previously in 7TV. Um, and that plays slightly differently as well, right? Yes. Do you want to, are you happy for me to speak about that, Peter? By all means, yeah. I mean, it, the magic system was probably the most challenging part of 7TV fantasy design. And what we did, we, we split um, the design team off. We, we had a subgroup that was working on, um, on spells and, and, and the, uh, the, the, the grimoires, the, the spell books. And we made the rookie mistake. Carl's really good on in, in letting us just kind of go through the process of game design and working it through and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't work. The Seven TV Fantasy's got a rel well, the whole Seven TV sort of family of games has a relatively simple rule set. So we all sat down to design the magic system, and it's like keep it simple, keep it simple, keep it simple. And what did we do? We just went really, really complicated. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think too many of us have played role-playing games. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we approached it from from that kind of a, a angle, really. And we we got we got several systems uh, worked through. I think we had I think in total that the, the one that's in the box is the seventh, six or seventh version. That the first five were you know very complex, slightly less complex, slightly less complex again, didn't work slightly less complex um and um yeah it was just that kind of thing where you start talking about spell levels and then who can cast what when they can cast it uh why they can cast it and you think hang on a minute this 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 really isn't 7tv uh and then carl very helpfully came along and said that isn't 7tv um so so he said well you do it now no um so <laughs> we uh, we, we went back to the drawing board and we looked at uh, the way um, attacks work and uh, and we tried to to balance it uh, with the normal the, the, the sort of standard kind of attacks the, the kind of shooting attacks and and, and um, strike attacks and, and presence attacks and tried to find common ground between those but the mastermind of that is really is really Carl so Carl can probably tell you more about the refinements that we that we made that we finally came down to than 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 either Dan or I can, although we were both responsible for some of the more complex ones. He says guilty. I, I think, Oof. to be fair to what Peter's um, said, that you know, it is in hindsight, it's a very interesting kind of exploration of, of game design and what you need to do and how you need to work through those um, things. I think when we got to the playtesting of it, um, the comments got back were there's too many layers to things there's too many things to remember i think we wanted to try and give a magic system that reflected the breadth of everything you could do across all of those genres and and different um yeah you know, uh, fantasy um films that we that we loved but arguably there were kind of too many layers to it and we we played about and really drew it back and i think the core thing is there is that we didn't need an additional type of mechanic 
I, we, I always kind of describe Lego in game design, uh, it, sorry, always describe seventy fantasy systems as kind of Lego. There's different bits of it that you can bolt apart and rebuild in different ways. And that's what we essentially did with magic. We kept the same essential mechanic that you use for striking, which is essentially aiming for a difficulty number yeah. and just applied that to, um, uh, to, to casting a spell. So um, other mechanics, you access spells. The only people that can access spells are the magic user. And mm -hmm. that's uh, uh, a magic user special effect. Uh, and it's got a little kind of level number in, in the box. So it's magic user X and it will go one, two or three. So that's the same as gadgets. People are familiar with that. Mm -hmm. They'll get the basic shorthand of what they what they need to do, and when they come to cast the spell, again, same mechanics. But the playtesting kind of worked most of that out, um, and actually came up with some really great little additions that we hadn't thought in um, about. We just had a basic spell failure, which means you couldn't really do anything else. And some of the playtesters suggested, "Oh, what if you have like a backlash effect if you cast it?" And what we could do is then. Um, if you fail to cast a spell, you basically get a random status applied to you, depending on what you do, which was just a nice little kind of fun cinematic that is. touch and added a little bit of extra risk that we'd we'd not really considered. Um, so that was great. But I should also say the core spells that we had right from the beginning were absolutely brilliant, and they didn't really change, even though the system of how to apply those uh, shifted uh, across the bit. The core outcome of those spells didn't, and we've got some love. We've got six little books, little grimoires. So the magic's divided into different kind of schools or type of magic, and the magic users just get access to those little books, um, and you choose those before the game, and it just allows you to do some nice, uh, some easy housekeeping, um, because the spells are essentially like special effects or kind of the more powerful star qualities. Each book has got a, quite a powerful difficult spell um in there so we needed to balance that off it, you know it's the equivalent of giving a profile another star quality so how do we balance that in games terms um and that was really useful and interesting to do um and we've applied that in a couple of places via ratings and by difficulty numbers and and by other kind of risk factors but actually the magic system is a page in the book it's it's not complicated and i think yeah. that's just alluding back to what peter said about um you know about being seven tv we've always tried to be fairly rules light so that you can enjoy the fun and the tone of the game that you that you want to that you want to play and i, I think we've, we've ended up in a really really good place with it and it's, it's probably worth saying that um a lot of the the, the interns who worked on the the magic system who designed all the spells and as carl said they, they really didn't change from first or second draft um there were so many good ideas they actually spilled out into the profile cards and they became special effects and star qualities and it's well worth mentioning the work of one of our interns jonathan robbie um who was was just exceptional uh in his his suggestions for spells and we used lots of his ideas across other profiles as well well, let's let's quickly underline something that you guys said there. There are six books of spells that come with the game. Um, now, each book of spells has six spells, and a magic user in the game, and not every character clearly has access to magic, but those who are wizards or have magical abilities are able to cast spells from one of those six books. 
Each of those has six spells. So six times six, there's 36 spells in the box. So 36 new ways to um, interact with the tabletop and mess up your opponent as you play. It's a nice addition to the game. And as you say, it really does. It's not a ton of rules. I was a little nervous when I first was like, oh, God, I have to... In researching this episode, oh god, I have to I have to figure out a whole new part to this game that I love. Like, but you know, reading games, believe it or not, spoilers isn't my favorite thing in the in the world. I like to play them. But to actually sit down and read this, I went, oh, this makes perfect sense. And for me to read it through the first time uh, without any problems was very nice. It it really spoke volumes about how I don't want to say simple because I don't want to sell it short. I think it's an elegant system that that you know, allows you to get playing quickly, but then has some depth to it, um, which is, I think, the best kind of game that you can have. Yeah, it's, it's always trying to find and strike that right balance um, between kind of all those elements and also kind of how did we want magic to be? How cinematic was it? There's most movies back in the 70s and 80s, which is really where we're looking at. You know, normally it's a bit of a lighting effect or maybe a little bit of color separation overlay. You know, it's not, <laughs> yes. it's not D&D magic where you're throwing fireballs around and doing that, but yet we want to try and reflect that breadth. Yeah. Um, so um, it was a really, it's an interesting challenge, but I, I think we've, we've got that balance quite right. You know, as you say, there's, there's 36 spells, but you're picking those in advance of play um, and you can, depending on your magic user kind of level that you've got, you may have one, two, or, or three of those. There may be one profile that's got magic user four, but I could be wrong. Um, so um, it's only kind of three extra bits to kind of remember for you, and you've got these lovely little dinky spell books to be able to kind of remind you as well. But yeah, yeah it's I think it, it works well. Nice. And, and again, that is something that's in the 7TV, 7TV box for you when you open it. You have the little spell books. Um, now, another book that you get in there, besides your usual um, director's guide, um, producer's guide, uh, you know, all the different guides that you need to play the game, you also have a new guide that I was very, I was very excited to see, which is the encounter guide. Now, this is something that previous editions of 7TV haven't had, and it really does lean into the way that you play fantasy. You know, for those of us who grew up playing games like Dungeons & Dragons or, heaven forbid, the old uh, tabletop uh, board game by TSR, Dungeon, or the Games Workshop equivalent, which was Warhammer Quest, you know, games like this... The, the whole dungeon crawler or the adventures where you go to, you know, the, the tavern, what happens there? Or you go into a dungeon and you run into this thing. That, up until this point, hasn't been something that uh, 7TV would really account for. It would be more of a, I have a cast, you have a cast, uh, we're going to set up on the table, we're going to play a mission, um, it'll be fun, it'll be, you know, hilarity will ensue, it'll be a good time. But that, that whole aspect of the adventuring hadn't really been fully explored. But with this, you really do get a whole new way to play 7TV. Carl, do you want to talk a little bit about how the, the, the whole encounter guide works? Because it's really well put together. And again, it gives you a whole lot of different ways to play this game that I already know and love. Yeah, we, um, we explored it a little bit. In fact... Actually, it's kind of exactly the same as the as the perils um, yes. that were in Seventy Pulp, uh, but that was quite a late addition to the kind of games development uh, with uh, with that system. 
Um, and we kind of defaulted to cards because we thought that was the, the sort of like the best way to do it at the time. It, practically, that made us a little bit tight on space with what we could do. So we kind of, um, we just upgraded that to, to a book in this one, but it's doing kind of the same job. There's lots of tone um, in fantasy that we can reflect in the profiles and some of the other mechanics, but there are a huge amount of tropes just in the adventure kind of type or situations that you um, that characters find themselves in that we wanted to reflect as well. Um, in one of the very first meetings with with the students where we were talking about how we convey that tone, um, one of the students, Eddie Price, said, "Oh, you know, there's." Um, there's those scenes in uh, Hawk the Slayer and, and Conan where the village gets burnt down at the beginning. You know, that's something we want to reflect in the profile. And I remember making a little note and thinking, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good kind of encounter. It's not something we do with a character. It's something we do with an environment uh, and how you kind of set things up. So um, that's what encounters are meant to be. You've got your six basic battles, but we did such a kind of good job quite early on with defining and distilling those down to their type you know it's a raid it's a rescue um what we really wanted to do with encounters is just layer and it's an optional feature uh, but layer a little bit extra on top um for you to reflect those situations like the tavern crawl or the thieves gauntlet or you know caverns and catacombs whatever it whatever it might be so we had quite a lot of fun doing those and, and the students generated a whole kind of swathe of these um fairly early on dan i can't remember what it was if, what you worked on with those but i think i did some of the the like the D, &D ones at the caverns and catacombs that you mentioned that sort of classic like dungeon crawl i don't remember the other one honestly it was it felt it feels like it was a while ago uh, oh dungeon dangers that was it the very sort of like i guess it was that kind of D, &D like oh you're walking down the corridor and then suddenly like a slime drops down from the top or a trap happens or something like that uh, but yeah i remember working on those and being like how can we distill those sort of classic elements of the D, &D dungeon crawl or whatever and how 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 would they work in a skirmish game i guess how can we make those fit with the actual game that is already being played yeah, especially, I mean, just to take a, a couple more of just because you've named some really great ones that, you know, you can almost get immediately know what's happening just by saying the name. But how about Wilderness Encounters, Wizard's Tower, The Ritual, The Temple of Essential Evil. I, I just love the name of that one. Um, Signs and Portents, Siege, The Raiders, On the Road, um, Dragonfire, Deathly March, uh, Marshes. Behind the Walls, Battlefield, Burial Mounds. I mean, you are covering, and that's just some of them. Um, this, and then, of course, those tie specifically to the genres that your casts are built around. Um, so you can really match up the, 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 the story of your cast to these adventures and encounters, um, which, again, are just added layers to how you play the game. Well, one of the other things that comes in the box that I'm really excited about as someone who's been playing and collecting the seven TV boxes as they come out 
are the new templates. Now, there have been cr uh, clear acrylic templates in the previous editions of the game. Um, you get a large um, blast template. Um, you know, there's a, usually a flame template. There, there's different templates to reflect different weapons or different effects that uh, characters can do in the game. 7TV Fantasy, though, really takes that and blows it up. There's just, there's a ton of new templates, but they are, they they don't look like any of the previous templates. They look absolutely amazing. Carl, can you tell us a little bit about the new sexy templates that come in this? Because they feel super 70s fantasy-tastic in the best way possible. Bless you, because that's exactly what we were trying to get across with them. I think in the past, I quite like the challenge of seeing if I can get, you know, one thing to do many jobs for me. So that's the previous template um, had uh, two different size blasts and also a kind of the, the arc that you use for a flamethrower or something, something like that. But quite early on, I think we recognised that, well, there are different types of effects and outcomes in fantasy that we probably need to reflect so that probably is going to necessitate a new template. And if we're going to do that and we want to convey that properly and also hark back to those sort of templates that you got in those wonderful war games and skirmish games in the past, mm -hmm. there's an opportunity here to maybe do something a bit different. So I went mad and we went from one to five um, in there. <laughs> we've got individual blast templates uh, for a, a kind of large and small one. And we've got new weapon effects, like we've got the new statuses. Um, we've got some different outcomes. Uh, so we have the beam template, which is used for, um, you know, uh, stairs and lightning bolts and kind of straight line. I mean, it does what it says on the tin, really. Um, uh, straight kind of attacks. We have the barrier template for shields and walls of thorns and, and, and that kind of thing. And then we have a larger teardrop template um which kind of upscales our our previous um flame one makes it a little bit bigger and a little bit longer that we use for obviously dragon fire um but that gets used for fun things like there's an elephant profile in there which has a good drench attack uh, which you have to use that template something awesome. where it's a large kind of spout and there's plenty of fantasy beasts um that use that but yeah we had quite a lot of fun with those the beamer template um is used sometimes. I think the giant slug leaves a trail of slime behind it that uses the uh, the, the beam template. So it, it it again made us be a little bit more innovative um, with some of the outcomes for attacks uh, and the special effects. It just it just broadened it out a little bit more, and I think we'll continue to use those in in other sets. Um, but it's probably worth me mentioning Dave Needham, um, who gets a huge amount of credit for the artwork right the way across the set. Uh, and he did all the the artwork for those as well. Uh, and between that and Sarissa Precision, who um, they basically printed uh, a, a a color on a, on an MDF. It's got a wonderful kind of mottled old school effect that I absolutely love. Um, they did some tests on some perspex, which were great, but actually the MDF worked better. It just it just it it had the right feel um, for it. So yeah, I'm I'm delighted with with how they've turned out. Well, let's talk about another part of TV then. Um, for those who are not familiar with the game, it is at its core 
um, well, I don't want to say at its core because it's more than that, but it is in one way a resource management game. At the beginning of each turn, um, you get a certain, you get a couple of plot points for your main character. Um, you get, I believe, one plot point each for your co-stars, and then you get half a point point each for each of your extras. And it's the plot points that allow you to activate your characters, and they allow you to take conditions off your characters, and they allow you to, your characters to do special abilities. So you could have your star do a, a huge number of you know really special abilities that they have on their card they can they can use gadgets uh, if we're talking about the old 7 TV sets um, or different abilities and all sorts of wonderful things can happen but then the rest of your cast isn't going to have a lot left to do what they need to do um, and so they may just stand there watching going ooh look what he's doing uh, and so that way um, the way that you are managing your resources in the game really does tell the narrative sometime. It reminds me of old Zorro movies where everyone stands around and watches them do the amazing things. Um, and then, you know, later on when everyone's running around, the main character is catching his breath. I, I, I love that, that that's one of my favorite parts of the game. Carl, you haven't, that's one part of the game that has not changed throughout um, the whole seven TV editions that I've played. Um, are you happy with how that works uh, it seems to be one of the core mechanics and people seem to really like it yeah it is the core currency and it just gives you a huge amount of tactical options mm. when you play because, uh, the other accessories you know all use those as well but also fundamentally 7tv is intended to be a cinematic game slightly larger than life in there so you want to be able to reflect you know your your star or, or your hero doing those big dramatic ridiculous things that aren't kind of humanly possible and plot points allow you to some extent to do that um by powering your star qualities or your other things or the the art artifacts gadgets as they have been in other games or MacGuffins that you you've got um in the game so it was something that we introduced into second edition and it just completely kind of blew the the, the game open in there both um, tactically and mechanically. Um, and there's, yeah, there's just a lot of fun to be had with it, I think. Yeah, it, my favorite thing is that it forces you to make some pretty hard decisions. You really do need to choose like, oh, who's going to activate and do what? And then how many am I leaving over for when my opponent goes? Because you can use plot points to add to your own defense on top of that. And so you really are constantly going, do I send, do I, do I spend my resources here? Uh, or do I save some? And then when you, you can try and steal the scene, which means you get to activate twice. But if you do that, you're only getting a portion of your plot points. So you're though you, you get to go twice, you're really limited in what you can do the second time around. And so it, it's a great balancing act that really, again, adds a lot of tactics and um, some, some hard decisions to the game that I really think gives it the replayability and forces you to really think when playing it. The game itself, as we said, is, is, isn't the hardest thing in the world to pick up. But again, there's depth in those choices that you have to make. And that resource management is just one more layer that really does make me want to come back again and again. 
Dan, as someone who's relatively new to 7TV, I guess not anymore. You've been working on it for years now. Um, is What are your thoughts about that? Uh, what, are your, what are some of your favorite aspects or mechanics to the game if it's not that? Um, I mean, I think I, that resource management system is a really interesting part about it. Specifically, I guess, sort of adding on to what you've already said, but the idea that the, your resource generation is tied to your models, which creates this sort of interesting sort of counterplay option of if you manage to remove their models, they're getting less resources. So it's this interesting battle of like, you're not only fighting over sort of getting their models off the board so they can't attack you, but like you might want to go after their little weak extras, even if they don't really do much, just because they are generating these plot points. Um, so it creates this kind of interesting, like, it's, I guess it's almost like a sort of you're fighting on multiple axes, even though they do kind of combine. Um, yes. Yeah, so I think that like is a good sort of driving force, I guess, behind it. Um, I'm trying to think about other things about the game that I'm like, yeah, what can I talk about? Um, I think another thing that I really like that we've sort of tried to address with fantasy is this sort of like with the um, the countdown cards, as they used to be called, the trilogy cards now, mm. is this sort of like act structure of the game where it sort of starts off and everyone's kind of scrambling for position. The cards are sort of enabling that. Um, and maybe you're kind of taking pot shots with weapons and stuff or casting some spells. And it's sort of the flow of the game where it's like act one, things kind of slowly moving towards each other. Act two, everyone's kind of fighting. And then act three is like this sort of last ditch. Like there's not very many models left. People are sort of scrapping it out. There's these interesting effects coming off the cards. And I think that sort of like bringing the act structure to the game, I think makes it quite interesting. It's quite a fun sort of feature, I'd say. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, I should have thought to mention that. One of the great things about this game is when you're playing, you're not playing a set, like you're not playing six turns like you are in a lot of games. You actually have a deck of cards, which in previous editions have been called, amongst other things, like Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 cards um, to, to that sort of lean into the the television narrative um, of the original game. Um, but at, when the game starts, you're pulling out, you know, depending on the size of the game, there's a certain number of Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3 cards. And when the cards run out, the game's over. And so you see the cards going, your deck of the remaining game gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And if players really want, they can burn out cards faster. But if they do that, um, you know, there's a bonus for their opponent for uh, plot points. So do you want to try and burn out the deck faster if you're winning? But if so, you're giving your opponent a bonus. So then, uh-oh, what does that mean? And so again, it's those hard decisions. Are there any new uh, wild new trilogy cards to, uh, to, to, to look out for? Because again, there's a big deck that comes in the box, but you're only taking uh, a certain number of each, which means there'll be... I mean, I've been playing 7TV for years, and there are cards I have yet to see because there are just so many damn of them. And when I shuffle them through, you know, you just never know what you're going to get. Um, any new wild ones, Carl? Uh, well, it's, there's 15 of, of each in each deck. So, yeah, you're probably going to be dealing at five per game. Mm -hmm. um, in there, as Dan said, they're kind of themed... Uh, intentionally so that it's kind of movement combat and then all hell blatantly breaks loose at the end mm -hmm. but um largely reflect the production kind of meta um of seven tv uh, and and just kind of 
uh, just enforce that you're you're making a movie um, in here. I, I think I know my favourite that we've got in, which I'm honestly surprised we've never put in before. And I think I've got a credit Peter for it. So I'm going to steal his thunder slightly. But the Wilhelm scream has finally made its way. Yes. So um, I'm a little embarrassed it wasn't there before, to be honest with you. But uh, it's a, it's a great addition. Um, and I can't honestly remember the outcome of it at the moment, but it just uh, it, it's just grand. Um, yeah, there's 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 loads in, and we've themed again. I think I, Peter might be able to uh, to read out some names for us if you've got them in front of him. Yeah, I mean, being fair to everybody, the the Wilhelm scream was uh, Will Clark's suggestion. Ah, what's I think if I if I remember rightly, yeah. So yeah, we we just tried to do as as we always do with the countdown cards. Um, just make ghastly puns, really, um, on, on some of them. Um, so, you know, just some memorable ones. Uh, Toss the Dwarf, um, Plot Armour, which seemed pretty appropriate. Wilhelm Scream that Carl mentioned. Deleted Scene, uh, Boom Mike. So Boom Mike's quite a nice one. So this turn, the range of presence attacks is increased by half, rounded up. So it, it does have some kind of logical coherence between what it's called and what it does. Got Rear Projection. Stopped motion was another ghastly pun. Uh, until your cast is next on screen, models cannot make move actions. Uh, prop malfunction, hitting the mark, critical hit, um, histrionic hand waving, um, fight rehearsal. Well, I think my favorite one is oiled for the camera, which was uh, nice. a, a nod to all the, all the peplum movies of, of the sort of 1950s and 60s. Uh, and Carl particularly likes this because Carl likes setting things on fire all of the time. <laughs> um, so oil for the camera is your stars and co-stars gain the on-fire status. Um, so they just immediately spontaneously combust, which is quite fun. I hate um, it when that happens. <laughs> budget cuts. Um, so friendly stars and co-stars cannot use star qualities or cast spells this turn. Um, fistful of dice, which we had to have. Mm -hmm. um, so. All of those were kind of fun. And we, we kind of tried to play against the sort of low budget fantasies as well. Mm. There's some really cheap fantasy movies. So knitted chain mail is one of the effects. All strike rolls receive an extra die until the cast is next on screen. It just says, you know, in some fantasy movies, the costumes are rubbish. Yeah. Uh, and, and we all recognize that and we're all happy. Uh, CGI abomination, I think was Sarah's. Um, she, we, we made Sarah watch, well, we hadn't made her watch, but we'd given them an Aster to watch, uh, a whole arrangement of, of really bad straight-to-DVD bargain shelf fantasy movies, and, and she was appalled by the quality of the, the CGI. <laughs> so that's where CGI abomination came from. Uh, On-screen anachronism for every fantasy movie that features a digital watch. Um, plot hole, battle music, obviously. Um, blue screen thinking, practical effects. Uh, so yeah, a, a lot of them sort of just picked up on, on shoddy production values um, and, and really bad conventions. But that's kind of what we do. Um, as yeah. Carl said, it doesn't take itself too seriously. Uh, Bardic interlude was quite one of my favorites. It's, like, <laughs> you know, it's the guitar <laughs> solo version mm. of 70 we went to see. We all experience those. Yeah. So those are the kind of things we do and they all have effects on the game mechanics uh, and the way the game is played. So I'm, I'm very fond of some of those. They're, they're probably some of the fun fun stuff we did at the very early stage of, of games mm. design when we had some really epic sort of four or five hour meetings just trying to thrash out the terms. What, what could we find that really worked? And then how could we take those terms and, and have them inform a mechanic for the game? 
awesome. I like how we spent four to five hours just coming up with puns. Yes. That was yeah. that was the most intense meetings we had. That sounds like a good oh, well, time uh, right there, yeah. Yeah, we had our priorities sorted clearly. <laughs> it, it's, it's puns and alliteration. That's what yeah. we really focus on. Yeah. <laughs> just our, like teaching poetry, really. <laughs> exactly. Pretty sure I was teaching alliteration a week ago. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, I just wish they had dad jokes to the curriculum. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, uh, Peter, maybe you've already figured that part out. As a primary school teacher, dad jokes are not allowed. So, unless you're making We're saving those for 7TV sitcom, which yes. is the forthcoming box set. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Actually, <laughs> Carl, yeah, I'll go white <laughs> overnight there. <laughs> Uh, Carl, stop writing that down. Um, speaking of which, actually, uh, Carl, you have teased. I mean, Seven TV Fantasy is in the mail. Um, people can buy it. Uh, people are already getting their copies. And yet, you are already teasing other editions uh, and other things coming soon, you bad, mad man. Shall we talk specifically about Vlad? And his army. Um, now, this is something that was in Seven TV First Edition. So that's even pre-sci-fi, which is the first box where I picked up. It was a Weird War expansion um, with zombies and vampires and all those wonderful things in World War II. Um, I owned it, but because it was First Edition, I, you know, I loved the the write-up in it. But the profile cards didn't match Second Edition. You are now putting that out with new models, yes? That's right. Yeah, it's um, it's going to be a feature pack. Um, what we have tried to do, we didn't do quite as well as, as we could with Pulp, but out of the back of all of the work that we've done with the university, and we are looking to kind of work with the students as either a kind of... Uh, alumni or as, as freelancers afterwards so we're trying to develop the ranges a little bit more and in fact dan is working on on Vlad's army right now um oh hello it was originally yeah. it, was, <laughs> uh, it was originally written uh by my long-term writing partner helena nash um i think even before 7tv first edition and she was just going to run it as a just a little one night skirmish game for us uh, with all, all around the giant pun of uh, home guard versus vampires so it's clearly called Vlad's army that it, it was mm -hmm. it was as many games it's a an opportunity to to have more bad puns um it was so great that I thought it would fit in really well with um one of the uh, versions of the game that we had for first edition and when I when we were developing what feature packs might be so lurkers is our lurkers from the deep which is the last kickstarter we did has got a feature pack in it um which is which is hold on which is like a lovecraftian um fishmen village um Egg. horror uh, yeah with new england style buildings and docks and fish people it's awesome exactly that uh, and we call that a feature pack and it nicely gets packaged in a little vhs case to just kind of um because we're suggesting that it was an old uh film or serial that was made um, for pulp back in the day um however when we're talking about feature packs really it's just a scenario pack so it's your traditional kind of more scripted adventure 
um, which we haven't done as much of um, in the past. There are people that really love Seven TV because it's a sandbox to create their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also a lot of people who, if anything like you are kind of, you know, like any of us are a bit time poor that want to just have everything and just set up and, and play. Um, and that's what I think that this sort of audience that feature packs are, are, are aimed at. So when I was testing that format to see what was, whether it would work um, and to get a sense of the kind of the length and, and components for it, I kind of went back to Vlad's army um, because it was the closest thing to that uh, and reformatted it. Um, so it's kind of, that was about a year ago, probably even longer than that. Um, so we've had it all laid out and had all the cards um, done uh, and we hope to, get that out for kind of november and dan's just going through and checking it and proofreading it for us at the moment and making sure that the mechanics and the extra bits are just um a, a sound so that we'll have that we'll have a small range of miniatures that will go with that um and that's just one of kind of many feature packs and other bits that we're that we're working on at the moment so we're really trying to support the game range a lot more um with a kind of a, a wider team um, which has been the difficult thing to try and manage when it's, you know, it's I've, I've always been standing on the shoulders of giants most of the time uh, with, with all of this. And it's, it's just trying to um, get that a little bit more formalized so that we've got kind of regular gaming stuff coming out on top of the uh, top of the miniatures. Well, that's one thing we really haven't talked much about, which is ironic, given that that is a huge part of your core business, is we keep talking about the games but we're not actually talking about the miniatures. Now, Crooked Dice makes one of the most expansive ranges of models in the industry. Um, you make, because your games are so open-world sandbox, you make models for all kinds of things, from circa 1960s British spies to fantasy heroes to um, bizarre ninja villains. Um, God, I'm just trying to think of all the, the models I have from you, and it's, it's a wild mix, including uh, animalistic cartoon heroes from the 80s that, um, yeah, hold giant swords above their head and yell Santa Claus-esque things at the sky. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure where I'm going with that. Um, but I do have those models and they're great, um, to, to Flash Gordon, to all kinds of things. Tell us some of the, some of the new models that you've had since the last time you were on that you guys have put out and what are some things that you're planning on doing? Because you have a certain range of, um, evil alien invader models that, um, you're expanding the range of that I absolutely adore and are some of the my favorite models that I painted in the last 12 months. And you're putting out the Jeep and the resistance fighters, including <clears throat> one that might resemble Michael Ironsides that I'm very excited about. Um, tell us what's coming up. Uh, yeah, as you said, it's a kind of an eclectic mix. Um, when we started off fantasy, I'd already had a couple of models uh, and some other stuff that I'd managed to um, acquire from Otherworld uh, miniatures. And we built that up. And there'll be a few more of those coming. Uh, but we've now got 80s kind of on some TV, 80s on the horizon. So I'm already starting to bank some um, some models for that. And in fact, Kev White from Hassle Free has just finished off a sculpt for me uh, this morning while we've been talking. He's uh, he's pinged that, that through. Um, so we're already starting to 
plan for those. The alien invaders will almost certainly feature. Um, so there's two different types of Jeep that are coming out for that and another pack of troopers, including a kind of a fifth columnist uh, technician uh, that will go into, into that pack and the resistance fighters as well. Um, yeah, we, we, we've got, I've got a lovely backlog of masters sitting right behind me. Um, at the moment, we'll have all of the lurkers from the deep stuff will be going into retail now that the Kickstarter's finished, though there were a good 30 or so extra kind of pulp investigators and army rangers and then a whole village mm -hmm. further and terrain um, that we uh, have there. I'm just uh, having a look at my, uh, my my little list of things in there. So the next feature pack that will be out will be Orsa uh, the Fearless, um, which is our um, a, a trilogy of barbarian movies that were produced by our faux uh, studio. Um, so that the first one, she's got a kind of a, a, a Norse feel to her. So we've got some interesting kind of um, Draugar and, and, uh, and, and some Barrow Whites that fit in with that, as well as some adventurer uh, that, that, that fit in. Uh, I've been, weird serendipity has, has happened in that when we did Vlad's Army all those years ago, um, I got permission to take photographs of some of East Riding miniatures, um, kind of Nazi zombies um, and uh, a kind of a, a zombie hunter type. Uh, and Tony from East Riding is retiring and he's selling off those ranges. So I acquired those the other week, which is kind of perfect timing. Um, so they'll be supporting Vlad's army. Um, we've got some sorcerous kind of slightly insectoid um, models that would, that would slay you um, in there coming up soon. It's a terrible description. You have to, you have to figure that out for yourself. Um, <laughs> Uh, what else have we got coming up? Sectoids slay you. Okay, I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. We've also got a, the we'll, the next Kickstarter. I suspect I'll probably run will be for Colony eighty seven, which is our kind of retro eighties um, sci fi outpost miniatures, and we've got Brilliant. a real ton of miniatures um, that James Sheriff and Andrew May have been working on there there are close to 40 new sculpts i think um for that um so there's 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 plenty there plus we we haven't gone too mad with fantasy because there's so much out there already um yeah. that we, you know, we it will just be duplicating which we've always tried to avoid um but for the box set we've also released a nice set of objective tokens and each of the mcguffin cards that's in the box set has got its own sculpted um uh, little uh, objective token as well which are in, in little theme um which i'm really i'm delighted about and i think we've, when we do 80s i'm going to try and do exactly the same thing for for that as well if we can um they certainly lent themselves very well to kind of fantasy objectives sometimes it's been a little bit more difficult to kind of um convey them on the tabletop when you're talking about you know a syringe or a nuclear code or something that's that can be a little bit more difficult uh, but I'm sure we'll 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 get around that. So yeah, just loads and a, and a weird kind of eclectic mix of of all sorts as as ever really. Um, you can't quite pin this down to one particular thing. Well, I got to say, I'm a huge fan, and I hope you keep doing what you're doing because uh, every time you guys put out new models, there's always that that first look of oh my god, that's amazing, and then 
the my very next thought because this is what goes through my mind as a buyer of games every single time I go to buy any game or any model is what will I use this for it it's the it's the thought in the back of my head that you know stops me from buying every single thing I see as an adult gamer with ADD the problem is you bad man, is that you created 7TV, which allows me to play with all of the models that you put out. And so, yeah, I'm very excited about 7TV 80s, and we're going to have to have you back on to talk at length about that because I'm sure I'll have a million things to talk about. I guess before we start wrapping up, I guess I have one last big question for you, and maybe, uh, Peter, this will be one that you can field There have been two very successful collaborations. Now, Carl's talked about bringing on some of the alum from the project back on to work on other expansions uh, in the future or other uh, adventure packs or possibly games for Crooked Dice. Is Edge Hill going to be part of that process moving forward? Is there going to be a third big collaboration? Um, Because it seems to me that the the first two have been such a roaring success that I'd, I'd hate to see it stop. Yeah, we've just had confirmation from uh, the university that uh, we're going to get a third project. Um, so we're joining Carl in, in, in developing a feature pack. So it'd be the first feature pack for the 80s. Uh, at present moment, it's got the working title of Teen Horror Feature Pack, which isn't terribly catchy. Um, <laughs> but if you can imagine if a John Hughes movie had been written by Stephen King and directed by John Carpenter, mm-hmm. you probably the idea of what we're aiming for um, and, and this time rather than doing a full box set we're going to do the feature pack but we're going to be developing uh, the world for that feature pack and hopefully that world will then inform a, a series of feature packs set in the 80s so we're going to be designing a, an American town um, and, and its characters uh, and its shops and stores and what have you and then sort of a number of weird kind of installations or phenomena that are around the town. So there's a lot more emphasis this time, I think, on, on world building and character design, rather than trying to think about a whole genre and, and, and write 230 profiles um, and, and, you know, six spell books and 36 spells and all of that. So it'll be a smaller project, which will run for one year, um, and it'll run with the intention of kind of supporting what we're doing with, with the 80s too. So very different, uh, but a really nice experience for the students. And it means our, our current first years will be going into the second year next year. They'll be quite keen on joining. I've, I've already had a lot of people sort of emailing me and saying, are, are you doing another one? Can, can, are you going to be advertising for interns? And it's like, well, I'll let you know as soon as I know. So one of the things I've got to do this week is let them know that there will be opportunities coming up next year. Um, so that should be quite a lot of fun. So I've just started buying DVDs of John Hughes movies and John Carpenter movies. Uh, for them. Um, so that'll be the first stage of the process as always is the research. Uh, but yeah, that's what we'll be doing. So yes, we've got another we've got another project and I'm really looking forward to doing it. Oh, that's brilliant. That is amazing news. And the sound of that uh, feature pack is, it's got me excited. I got to say, I got a big smile on my face. I, I cannot wait for this. Yeah, I love the idea of really honing in and doing a series of 80s packs, mainly because I just want more 80s content in the gaming world. But um, I know you guys will do it right. So, yeah, that is fantastic news. 
again, Peter, we're going to have to have you back at some point, but thank you again so much for coming on. Um, as a teacher, I know that, you know, it's not always easy to, uh, to make the time for everything. And yet you've made the time to come on this show twice. Um, and you really have through your own, you know, blood, sweat and tears, um, you know, worked with Carl to, to, to bridge, you know, education in a meaningful way. Um, but to really expand into the, the gaming industry, um, it, it's just so fantastic. Uh, I'm, I wish there were more like you. So um, please keep up the good work. And thank you for making the time. Thank you, Pat. That's really very, very kind of you and, and very much appreciated. And, um, you know, working on 7TV with the interns, with Carl, it's never been anything more than an absolute pleasure. So I've really relished the opportunity. I want to thank Carl for, for giving us that opportunity way back in 2017 and every year after. Yeah, definitely. Oh, no, thanks, David. It's been, it's been an absolute ball, but I, you know, I, I want to thank the university and the Student Opportunity Fund uh, and the whole team, um, really, for kind of having faith in in, in Cookie Dice and, uh, and 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 it's been great to to work with the team and long may it continue both kind of inside and outside the, uh, the university as well. It's there's already, um, I say, Dan's working with us and there's a couple of other. Uh, alumni that we're we're working with so um it's i think we're building something really great and uh, as you say long may it continue nice oh speaking of the students and people who made the time to join us today um and someone who's been a hero throughout this process dan <laughs> thank you for uh joining us and of course it is very nice to have you on camera because uh, embarrassingly i get to see blush every time i say something nice or someone says something nice <laughs> about you but um <laughs> yeah it makes that part's not great, but yeah, <laughs> it makes terrible audio. But seriously, uh, mm. Dan, thank you so much for all your hard work because, uh, again, Carl does this for a living, and you know, I, I guess to a degree, Peter does as well, and has really facilitated um, the the work on this. But without your hard work, without the hard work of the interns that we had on previously, and who have not been on at all. Um, you know, this awesome box that's in front of me that, you know, I'm loving the, the contents of just, it wouldn't be here. You guys really have facilitated this, um, through your own hard work and yeah, it's been a labor of love. You can tell that you guys have really gone in deep. Um, so thank you for all your hard work, man. I mean, that's, that's all right. Thank you for the words, but I'd say, Honestly, like we wouldn't even be able to do this if not for, I mean, they've already talked about it, Peter and Carl making this whole project. Like, I didn't come to university, like, yes, I'm going to work on a game. It just kind of, the opportunity <laughs> was there and I was, we were lucky enough to be able to sort of take it. But yeah, no, it's been, it's been great, honestly. Yeah. Look, I don't want to say in my day, uh, I had to grind out <laughs> university and then go to work for the Evil Empire Games Workshop in their sales department because that was the only door I could get in uh, to get into gaming. So uh, the fact that someone is bringing up the next generation of game designers and people working in the game industry or giving people the experience if they want to um, – and not having to work for Games Workshop, I think that's amazing um, because so many of us uh, have been through those uh, brutal days of hard knocks to get where we are. But, um, you know, jokes aside, um, I think it's a fantastic opportunity. And again, Carl, love your work, man. Love it. Love it. Love it. Please. Long may it continue. Um, 
Crooked Dice is one of my faves. Uh, I, I unblushingly say that. And to have you on again is always an honor. Thank you so much for making the time, brother. Oh, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Always lovely to talk to you, Brad. Thank you. Well, guys, uh, I know I've been away for a while, and I'm sure I've been a little rusty today. It's hard to knock the rust off after not picking up a mic for a couple of months. But thank you for listening today, uh, and thank you for being patient with the hiatus. Uh, We will be back next week. I already have the next episode lined up, and it is another big one. Um, If uh, (laughs) Some of you have been asking about Stargrave. I'm just saying. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm. It's uh, There's going to be a lot going on. Other than that, uh, guys, thank you so much for listening. And Cast Dice will be back for the foreseeable future with tons of great content. And as my buddy Casey always says, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Good night. And the terrorists fan that